Well, hi, everyone. We're going to begin today by reading God's Word. So if you have a Bible or device, I'm going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus is doing an opinion poll uh, with his disciples that's right in line with our teaching series. And so we, we, be, we began week one with this question, who is Jesus? And Jesus is basically asking his disciples the same question. So listen to how Matthew describes it in chapter 16, starting in verse 13. He says, And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so in this text, Jesus asks two important questions. One is a poll question and the other is a personal question. So so first he says, who do people say that I am? He's taking a survey and the results of the survey are quite interesting. They, They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And so if we were answering the question, we'd say, well, the Muslims say, you know, that Jesus was a prophet. The Hindu says that Jesus was just one of a million gods. The Jews believe that Jesus was a great prophet and a teacher, but not God. Atheists deny him altogether. And so the disciples give their answer and, and, and to the quiz, and they think that the quiz is over. They thought the only assignment was to report back what everyone else thinks. And by the way, some of you may be there too. Like you think that you can borrow your understanding of Jesus from someone else. My mom said this, or my college professor said, or my pastor says, or my Sunday school teacher used to say, and then you think, well, I'm done now. But then Jesus kind of spins on his heels and he asks the personal question, who do you say that I am? And we all have to answer that question personally. Like we all have to figure out what we're going to do with Jesus That's what we're doing through this whole series. It's a a look at Christology, which means the study of the person and work of Jesus. And so Peter's personal answer is very profound. It's the first time anyone uses this very important title for Jesus. It's the one that we're going to talk about today. And as soon as Peter says it, Jesus latches onto it and he, he begins to build on it. So what did Peter say? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Christ. Now, when we say the word Christ, we usually say Jesus Christ, and Christ is not his last name. (laughs) Christ is a title. It is the declaration that he is the king. And so Peter is saying, you are the king. You are the one that we've been expecting. This word Christ is the equivalent of the Old Testament word Messiah or anointed one. So there was an ancient promise of a a ruler, a future ruler who would be sent from God, who would sit on the throne of David forever, an ultimate king who would rescue his people. And so Peter's saying, that's who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the promised king of God. And then Jesus latches onto and he says, yes, and on this rock, on this declaration, on this confession, I'm going to build my church. And and so from that point onward, the early church's message was almost exclusively centered on this truth. So, So yes, the apostles preached about the cross and they preached about the resurrection, but mainly they preached that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. So I'll give you some examples. When John summarizes his reason for penning his whole gospel, he says these words, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Son of God. 
The, the, the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon back in the early days and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Or look at the very first sermon ever preached in the church era in the book of Acts. Peter, again, says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you cru crucified, both Lord and Christ. Or, or look at the summary of, of what the apostles kept preaching to bring more and more, more people into the church. In Acts 5.42, it says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news. What is the good news? That Jesus is the Christ. Or how about what the Apostle Paul preached after he got converted by that blinding light, remember, on the road to Damascus? Acts 17.2 says, As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so over and over again, the exclamation point, and I, I really want you to feel the weight of this. Because to understand Jesus, you have to understand the importance of this title. The Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the, the promised and long-awaited King who would finally come to rescue His people. Now, that's just the New Testament, but the Old Testament has this theme, and, it, and it's even more prevalent. In fact, there are 127 messianic predictions involving more than 3,000 verses in the Old Testament. And, and so these incredible promises form one of the most central themes of the whole Bible, the coming Messiah. And so you have all these figures. Moses said, he's coming. And David said, he's coming. Isaiah said, he's coming. Jeremiah said, he's coming. Daniel said, he's coming. Micah said, he's coming. Zechariah said, he's coming. Malachi said, he's coming. Every book, every chapter, nearly every page of the Old Testament testifies to this one great truth. He's coming. God is going to send the Messiah to earth to deliver his people. Now, here's the problem. When Jesus finally arrived, a whole bunch of people didn't connect the dots that it was him because he didn't come in the way that they had imagined. And, and I'm afraid we have the same problem today. Like we've gone to such lengths to squeeze Jesus into our little box that when he does actually show up, we don't recognize him. One of the great misunderstandings in that first century is that people were expecting a political or a military king who would set up his headquarters in Jerusalem and mobilize a resistance army. But Jesus came and, and he taught that his kingdom would not be defined by political boundaries. It would embrace people, in fact, from every nation. And part of the confusion is that it, it wasn't an outward kingdom. It was a kingdom set upon changing people's hearts and lives. Listen to how he described it in Luke chapter 17. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the weapons of his kingdom were not tanks or guns, but teachings that would change people's hearts and miracles like Pastor Sarah pointed us to last week that, that pointed to this greater reality. His kingdom was revolutionary, to be sure, but because it wasn't political enough and because it wasn't immediate enough and it didn't provide instant relief from their political problems, instead of recognizing him as king, they put him to death. His kingdom was not what they expected. But in spite of that, here's my big idea today. Jesus is the victorious Messiah and his ultimate victory is still to come. Where did this whole thing originate? This idea of a conquering king and, and a rescue. It sounds like something from the pages of an epic story or a movie like, you know, Princess Bride or, or something. Any Princess Bride fans out there? It is one of the best. Anyway, we, we need to go back to the beginning 
to trace this promise of Messiah because it's an idea that was building for thousands of years before Jesus came. And so let me just share with you some of the whispers of the coming Messiah. These whispers were early rumors that the king is coming. And so the first whisper comes way, way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were living happily in the garden, and then Satan, in the form of a serpent, convinced them to break God's law and to eat of the forbidden fruit, and they willfully entered into sinful rebellion against God. And anything that was once whole became broken. Everything that was once good was now stained with the consequences of sin, and God began levying the, the, the repercussions for Adam and Eve's actions. And right in the midst of God kind of declaring these curses, there's a very important verse in Genesis 3.15 that, that, that begins this whole promise of a conquering Messiah. Genesis 3.15 is this verse that's kind of like an acorn that's eventually going to turn into a mighty oak. In fact, these words contain the early echoes of God's plan of salvation. The great English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. Theologi uh, theologians have called it the proto-evangelium, which just means the first gospel, because these words spoken by God contain the first promise of redemption in the whole Bible, a promise of victory in this cosmic battle between God and Satan. But if you're not careful, you could skip right over this little verse. And so after all that build up. Let me read to you Genesis 3.15. God says to Satan as he's levying, uh, metering out kind of his consequences for sin, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, I hope you're not left, let down after all that hype, but that was it. There it is. And you may not see it at first glance, but Jesus Christ is in this verse. Because Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, the promised offspring, who would one day come to crush the serpent's head. And in the process, it says that Jesus' heel would be bruised on the cross. And so I ask you, which wound is more damaging, a head wound or a heel wound? Uh, well, a head wound is. And so God is declaring that in this cosmic conflict that Jesus' heel will be struck, a, a short-term setback on the cross. But Jesus will win the ultimate victory over Satan with a decisive blow to the head. And so from Genesis 3 onward, these whispers would grow. He's coming. One is coming who will set this whole thing right. And so this idea of a Messiah goes all the way back to the garden. Jesus Christ would eventually come to fulfill a promise made by God amid the wreckage uh, caused by Adam's original sin in Genesis 3. Now, sin would continue to wreak havoc on the human race and on earth through the Tower of Babel and the scattering of humanity and through the flood and through slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness wanderings and through the time of the judges. But then there's this, this, this other whisper in the time of the kings. God gives us another detail that the Messiah will be a king in the line of David. And so God says in 2 Samuel uh, 7.13, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so that sounds like an eternal kingdom that is going to one day be occupied by an eternal king. And the rumor kicks up again. The whisper begins to gain steam. And then the prophet Isaiah would later add to this rumor and he would include details of suggesting that the ultimate king may not be exactly what people expect. He may not be the political revolutionary that they were hoping for. 
that his kingdom would be good and righteous and eternal, but it may not supply immediate political relief. Look at what Isaiah says some 700 years before Jesus was born. That's like something being predicted back in the 1300s and coming true with pristine accuracy here in the 2000s. So Isaiah 53, 3 says this. You'll be familiar with this. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so it was prophesied that the the Messiah would actually be a suffering servant. He would take suffering that we deserve, but he would not just suffer for our sins, but he would bring peace and healing and victory as a result. And those were the whispers. And there are some 3,000 verses like this. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and the world waited. What I want you to see now is that the fulfillment of the Messiah happened in Jesus, that Jesus is the predicted Messiah. And I only have time to take you to a few of those examples today. But, but here, the first fulfillment was that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Like, this is a big deal since Bethlehem was such an unlikely spot for the most important figure in history to be born around the eerie area here where we're we're located. It would be like saying that the next president of the United States is going to come from Elgin Beaver Dam or or Mill Village. And no matter where you're watching from today, you have that little no-name town with a couple hundred people in it. Well, that was Bethlehem. And in the Christmas story, when the wise men came looking for the one to be, the, to be born the king of the Jews, it says that Herod, and I want you to remember that name, Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And so this prophecy that they're re- referring to goes back to Micah 5.2. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And how Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem is a crazy story. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, remember. But because there was a census being taken, we read about that every Christmas time, they had to go to the town where Joseph was originally from, which happened to be Bethlehem. What a coincidence. Man, did God get lucky that there was a census being taken, didn't he? Listen, here's the thing about all these messianic prophecies. God is not just making random predictions like with a hope and a good chance that they'll come through. God is in complete control. The God has orchestrated these events and he's seeing them already taking place. And, and by the way, not only is Jesus born in Bethlehem because of Joseph, but in the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the, the, the lineage of Jesus is traced back through Joseph to the kingly line of David. Remember, the Messiah would come through David's lineage. And so we're seeing these very important fulfillments to prophetic predictions in Jesus Christ. Here's the second fulfillment. Jesus declared the kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is mentioned. This idea is mentioned 135 times in the gospels, mostly by Jesus. He was obsessed with it. And, And he was diligent about declaring that, listen guys, a page has been turned in history. And his role, Jesus' role, was to inaugurate, to usher in a brand new kingdom. So Jesus' first recorded words say this. He says, the time is fulfilled 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then the very first act of Jesus' public ministry, he goes into the synagogue and he stands up and he opens the scroll and he reads this messianic passage from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so he reads this Old Testament verse that prophesies the Messiah. But it wasn't just that he read it that it was profound. It's what he did next. It was another ancient mic drop moment. He read the passage that was clearly referring to the coming king, the Messiah, that all of history had been building toward. And Luke says, here's what he did next. He rolled up the scroll, he sat down, and he said these words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, hey guys, Isaiah was talking about me. That prophecy I just read is about me. And here I am. And so Jesus announced his new kingdom that would bring justice and healing and shalom to the poor, hope to the broken, to the prisoners, to the outcasts. It's very different than the kingdoms people were used to dealing with on earth, with castles and crowns and conquests. Christ's kingdom was not about lands. It wasn't about thrones. It wasn't about power. It was about a new way for God's people to live under God's authority. So the kingdom that Jesus ushered in is great news for all of us, but it's also a radical redefinition of what people expected from their Messiah. He didn't come with force and military might. He came humble and in the nature of a servant. But but don't get confused about his power. Jesus was not Mr. Rogers with a beard. There, There was no question who the king was. So I want you to see the third fulfillment. Jesus owned his role as Messiah. And I want to give you a few examples of this that you may have missed as you read the gospel, starting with Jesus' baptism. It was an ordination ceremony. John the Baptist was, you know, the one who was baptizing. He was the forerunner to Jesus. And he was baptizing people as a sign of repentance, a ceremonial washing with water. It was kind of a liturgical act, preparing Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And so when Jesus approached John to be baptized, something changed. John looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John shifted his focus from repentance, which Jesus didn't need because he was sinless, to acting out an inauguration or even an ordination ceremony. And we see all of the members of the Trinity, the dignitaries, present. Mark 1.10 describes it like this. It says, When Jesus came up out of the water in his baptism, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, And the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice coming from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. And we see together the father, the son, and the spirit marking the moment that the Messiah, the savior of the world would begin his ministry. So so God shows up from the heavens and he says, this is the one, don't miss it. But, but Jesus also owned his role as Messiah in some ways that were a little more difficult to spot. Let me say it this way. Jesus low-key picked fights with earthly kings, right? In fact, there was one king in particular that Jesus loved to poke at. Remember, in 40 BC, there was this, this ruler named Herod the Great who came to Israel from Rome. His title, ironically, was King of the Jews, And Herod was a brutal murderer. He killed his own wives. He's the one we read about earlier who who ended up murdering all of the Hebrew children under two years old when the Magi tipped their hand that the new king had been born in Bethlehem, the king of the Jews. And this act became known as the slaughter of the innocents. 
Now, when that Herod died, his kingdom was divided up between his sons, who were named, ironically, Herod, Herod, and Herod. <laughs> Dude was like George Foreman, who named all his kids George, even the girls. Anyway, all of the Herods were like their dad, and that they were evil. One of them, named Herod Antipas, was the governor of Galilee during the time Jesus was doing ministry there. And Jesus loved to not so subtly contrast his kingdom with Herod's kingdom. Herod Antipas, you may remember, is the one who beheaded Jesus' cousin John the Baptist. Herod probably thought that by doing so, he had sent a signal that had removed that pesky little Jesus movement from the earth. But when Jesus heard of John's death, he immediately goes to Galilee. So he heads right into enemy territory, Herod Antipas' territory. Now you need to know that one of the primary ways in those days that politicians showed their power was through coins. Like a ruler's image on a coin in circulation was a big time flex. And Herod's symbol was a reed. And so all of his coins would have this picture of a reed on it. It would be kind of like our billboards where you'd see the politician's name on a billboard wherever you go. So, so they use this on coins. Well, Jesus comes into Galilee and he says these words in Luke 7, 24. Remember, he's contrasting kingdoms. He's talking about the ministry of John the Baptist in the kingdom of God with Herod, who, who had just killed him. And Jesus says, what, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's talking to the people. Did you go to see a reed? Look at, shaken by the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing. He's poking the bear. He's like that king of yours in his soft clothes wearing wuss kind of way. And Jesus says, you know what reeds are good for? Reeds are good for swaying to and fro whichever way the wind is blowing. He went on. No, you didn't go to the wilderness to see that kind of a guy. You came to see a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, says Jesus, among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. He's contrasting kingdoms. Herod thinks he's great, but John the Baptist is actually the great one in the only kingdom that matters. There was another commonly known story at the time. It was about how Herod Antipas had married the daughter of a foreign king, as they would do in those days. And yet, in this case, he got himself into a love tri triangle with another family member couldn't control himself. And this was a major slap in the face to that foreign king because it embarrassed his daughter. And so that foreign king declared war on Herod because of his little sexual faux pas. And just like in his personal life, in the battle that, that, that they go into against each other, Herod is, as they say, caught with his pants down. He goes into the battle grossly underprepared. He only takes up 10,000 soldiers and he gets pummeled. He suffers a major defeat. Well, in Luke 14, 31, Jesus is teaching his followers about the kingdom and about the importance of counting the cost of discipleship. And he decides to use, let's call it a contemporary illustration. He says, well, what kind of king going out to encounter another king in a war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? What does Jesus do? Jesus is like, what kind of moron would, would be so underprepared in a battle, and, and everyone knew exactly which moron he was referring to. And they were like, shh, 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 ixnay on the hair, hair hey, you know. They're, they're trying to tone Jesus down because he's poking the bear. That then in Luke 13, 32, we find Jesus in a, in a, in a, a very uh, incredible moment. He's weeping over Jerusalem. And some messengers come to him, and they're warning him that, that Herod, uh, that he's been poking at, now wants to kill Jesus. And I want you to listen to his response. Jesus says, go tell that fox. 
Go tell that fox that I will drive out demons and I will heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. Now, listen, if you're called a fox today, you know, maybe it means you're sly and cunning or maybe it even means you're kind of easy on the eyes. Wow, he's a fox, she's a fox, she's a silver fox, whatever. In those days, being called a fox was a huge insult because foxes were bottom feeders. Like out in the wild, a lion would come in and make the kill and the lion would eat whatever he wanted to and then the fox would sneak in and take all the leftovers and act like they had made the kill, kind of like a jackal or a hyena. And so ancient writers would talk about the fox as, as kind of like a lion want to, wannabe. You know, so the fox was a fraud. And so Jesus, the, the lion of Judah, says, Go tell that little wannabe fox, Herod, that, that if he thinks my kingdom can be stopped by something as inconsequential as killing me, he's in for a big surprise. I'm not bound by death. I'm not playing by the same rules. My kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. My kingdom is inside all these people. And so I will go about driving out demons and I will go about healing people and I will go on declaring a new kingdom because he may kill me. But the third day is coming and the third day is kingdom day and he's in for the shock of his life, right? So he's poking. And then right after this, we see Jesus' heart for the people who had, who had missed him. And in Luke 13, 34, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's weeping. He says, You who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather you, your, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so he had just called Herod a fox. And now the animal that Jesus picks to represent himself is a hen gathering her chicks. Just play it out. When a fox breaks into a hen house, who wins? Well, the fox wins. And a mother hen has no weapons. So, so what can she do to protect her children? Nothing except gather her chicks and, and then use her own body as a shield against the fox. She can only give her life. The only weapon she has is her own body. A hen will say, kill me so that my children can live. And Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when he got back to Jerusalem, and he was weeping over it. Well, he also claimed to be Messiah when he rode into Jerusalem as the king. Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey on what we call Palm Sunday, it was a significant messianic act. You need to know that kings rode donkeys. People think the donkey thing was a sign of humility, and that's true in a way, but there was something deeper going on. Jesus was actually fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that says about the coming king. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Listen how he describes it. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted, on a donkey. And so in this simple act, Jesus is declaring himself as Messiah. He is enacting the moment that all of Jewish history, all of the ancient prophets were pointing toward. He was riding into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah. And to everyone in attendance that day, it's very clear who he's claiming to be in this act. Why do you think they were laying down their coats and palm branches and anything that they could find under his feet? He was claiming to be the arriving messianic king. But there was one more important messianic claim going on in this moment. Jesus started to receive people's worship. So during his ministry, Jesus was a little bit under the radar. Like there was this repeated theme in the Gospels that's known as the messianic secret. Remember this? Like Jesus would do a great miracle and then he'd be like, hey, let's not tell anybody about that, okay? 
Why? He didn't want interference in his public ministry by the officials. He didn't want to become a, a political threat until it was time. Well, on Palm Sunday, it was time. Everything changed. This was the coming out party. Like coming in, there was two blind men at the gates that called Jesus the son of David. Remember, that's a kingly title re reference reserved for the Messiah. And Jesus heals him. He's finally saying overtly and out loud, yes, that's me. And so he rides into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna, which means God save us. Again, Jesus doesn't stop them. He accepts the public declaration. Even though he knows that the salvation that he's offering is going to be different than what they think it is. He accepts their praise to the point that it makes the Pharisees uncomfortable. In fact, in Luke 19, 39, people are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king. And it says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell, tell them to quiet down. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if, if, they, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, so finally, the cat is out of the bag. He's saying, I, I, I deserve their worship. In fact, Pharisees, I deserve your worship. And if you all will fail to worship me, the creation itself will start to kick in on the chorus. So Jesus is public, publicly accepting the title of the ultimate king, the Messiah, the Christ. And, and you can see as this thing's building how, how the people were poised for revolution. Like he'd been verbally sparring with Herod from afar, kind of lobbing bombs. And, and he was intentionally fulfilling all of the messianic prophecies as he went about his ministry. And he was now receiving praise like a triumphant leader. But there was one final messianic claim that Jesus declared he was Messiah from the cross. You probably remember these words from Mark 15 where in some of his final words, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of the most haunting and beautiful questions ever spoken. What you may not know is that Jesus wasn't just saying this randomly. He was quoting the Bible. He was quoting the Old Testament. He was reciting a verse from Psalm 22, which you guessed it, is a messianic prophecy. Here are a few other excerpts from Psalm 22. It says, all who see me mock me. Strong bulls encircle me. They pierced my hands and feet. All my bones are out of joint. They divided my garments. They cast lots for my clothing. Does any of that sound familiar? Psalm 22 is predicting an execution. And by quoting Psalm 22 here, Jesus is saying, as David wrote these words about the suffering Messiah, he was pointing to this death. He was pointing to this moment. He was pointing to me. And every person within the sound of Jesus' voice on that cross knew exactly what he was quoting. Now, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. It was a messianic claim. It was a declaration by Jesus that this thing is playing out exactly how God has written it for all of history. But this cry of abandonment is also something else. Because it's not rhetorical, that means the question has an answer. And so what's the answer? Why was Jesus forsaken by God in that moment? The answer is you and me. It's us. God, why have you forsaken me? And God looks back and he says, so that we can get our children back. You see, Jesus was forsaken by God in that moment on the cross so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus and so that we could be in relationship with the Father. And in that moment, God looked at his son and he looked at you 
and he chose you. And that truth has to shake you to your core. And so here's what I hope you see today. That Jesus came as the king. Jesus came as the Messiah, as the Christ, to usher in a new kingdom. And that kingdom was started, but it's not completed yet. There's an element to it that's now and part of it that's not yet. And while Jesus came the first time as Messiah, the anointed one, in humility to save the world, he will come again a second time as the conquering king to judge the world and to bring history to its proper completion and to usher in his ultimate kingdom for all eternity. And so the prophecies about the Messiah were not a bunch of scattered predictions randomly placed throughout the Old Testament. They form a unified promise of God that a king is coming and has yet come, who is scheduled to come again, and he will make all things right. And so we've talked today about Jesus as Messiah, the rightful king. And my prayer today is that when faced with the question that Jesus posed to his disciples that we began with, who do you say that I am? That after today, you and I can intelligently join Peter in saying, you are the Christ, you are the king, you are the son of the living God. I want to ask you to reflect on this question as we close today. And that is this. What would you need to change if you embrace the fact that Jesus is the true king of your life? I leave you today to ponder that question. I love you guys. Mm-hmm.